Sometimes the effect of the most spellbinding oratory can fade after a few hours. Other times, the most simple words, even delivered poorly, can change entire lives. It's a bit of a mystery, but one we see actually in the life of Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers. He may be the most famous and most well-read preacher since biblical times. He could preach to more than 20,000 people without a microphone. He was known for his amazing and eloquent sermons, of which he sometimes gave 10 or more per week. Spurgeon is perhaps the most widely published Christian who ever lived. So how was he converted? Must have been listening to an equally eloquent sermon by an esteemed orator, right? No, wrong. He went to church often growing up, but he did not come to believe until a snowstorm in his teens. He was unable to make it to his planned destination on a Sunday morning, so he stopped in a tiny church with perhaps a dozen in attendance. The preacher was a stand-in. He was no professional. Spurgeon later said that he was, quote, a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, close quote. In recounting it, Spurgeon said, he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. It's from Isaiah 45, 22. Spurgeon said he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. He recounted that the man looked right at him and said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. It was then, Spurgeon says, quote, the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ. Such is the strange working of God with his word. A simple text from the scripture was used by God to convert Charles Spurgeon. He went on to preach more than 600 times by the time that he was 20. Well, our text this morning is one of the more well-known of the parables of Jesus Christ. It explains that God's word will have different consequences for different people. That's what I've come to appreciate about it these days. When I was a new Christian, my college pastor actually taught me this passage, and I learned that a Christian walk is a marathon, and a true commitment to Christ means a fruitful life. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. You can find that in the Pew Bibles on page 818. While you're turning there, I'll give you a brief summary of the Gospel of Matthew so far. We see lots of things happening religiously. Jesus' birth, his baptism, and the beginnings of his ministry. Jesus went through the temptation successfully where Israel had failed before. He's begun to teach, and his fame spread, and great crowds were following him. He delivers the Sermon on the Mount, renowned even in our day among believers and non-believers alike. His teachings are popular, for he taught with authority. But things start to take a little different turn in Matthew 10, when Jesus picks the twelve and sends them out. He warns them that he is sending them out as sheep among wolves. We read in Matthew 12, 14, this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus. How to destroy him. Still, at this point, many followed him. But it wouldn't always be so. We know that from John's account, it says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him a little bit after the time that we're going to be reading about. His teaching sometimes drew large crowds, but it often repelled people too. After all, he said, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We know that by the time of the cross, he had only a few followers, and even Peter, one of his closest, denied him three times. Clearly, some who had believed at one point no longer did. Perhaps to explain that phenomenon, Jesus told the parable of the sower. Listen as I read Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. We see here a fairly straightforward agricultural parable. Uh, seed to grow needs to find a soil to burrow into, to grow roots, and to sprout. A hard path will not allow the seed to germinate. A shallow path as rocky will germinate quickly, but it won't have any roots. It won't last. Otherwise, good soil that has weeds and thorns are, is going to choke out that good plant. It's not going to allow the fruit to grow. But if the seed finds good soil, it can burrow down, grow roots, and produce a plentiful crop. That's fine, you might be thinking, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, we have four points to the sermon today as we answer that question. Number one, secrets. Number two, seed. Number three, soils. And number four, the sower. So first, let's look at secrets. Why did Jesus teach in parables? Why not plainly declare his teaching? Well, let's read verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So why is God hiding himself here? First, we should be careful not to put God on trial. God is the creator of the universe, and we're not. He has authority, knowledge, and power on a scale that we can't even imagine. His ways are not our ways. You can read Job, particularly chapter 38, 
to see why questioning God is not a good idea. Let's look at back at verse 11 where Christ says why he teaches in parables. He says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He did not want everyone to understand, at least at this point. It may be that the Jewish people expected the Messiah to be a military leader. Jesus was attracting large crowds, many of whom would have expected him to be a nationalist and revolutionary figure, someone who would overturn Roman rule. That was not going to be the way of Jesus. He had more, much more to teach them. But why only reveal it to some? This isn't as surprising because it actually fits a pattern. Different people have had different levels of revelation throughout history. The Old Testament people of God did not have as full a picture of God as those who lived during Jesus' time. We see that from verse 17, right? Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. Most especially, they would have loved to see the Messiah in the flesh. Well, we can complain about God has revealed himself or lodge a protest that it's unfair to this group or that group. But the simple fact is that we're going to be called to account for how we respond to what we have been shown. Frankly, it's a miracle at all that God reveals himself to anyone. He's under no obligation to show us that mercy since we have rebelled against his rule. We'll talk more about that in our second point, the seed. Jesus tells us the seed in this parable is the message about the word of the kingdom. We see that in verse 19. This is referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know about this gospel because it's in God's word, the Bible. Please, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of our pew Bibles home that you have, that's around you. Uh, perhaps you might like to read it starting in the Gospel of Mark. There's a table of contents in the front that will show you where that is. As you read, you're going to uncover the Gospel or the good news. Here's a summary. God made the heavens and the earth, and He made us in His image. But man rebels against God, choosing to live his own way and sinning against God and His law. Each of us has done the same. To provide a way of forgiveness, Jesus came to earth to live the perfect life that we could not. He was tempted, but he trusted God and his word, and he rejected sin. He died on the cross, voluntarily taking the sins of all who repent and believe in him. You must decide then what to do with this, and you are called to turn away from your rebellion and sin and to trust in what Jesus did. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what I've just done there? I've thrown out some seed. That is the message and gospel of Jesus Christ. It's freely available to all. It does not matter if you are rich or poor, young or old, male or female, Jew or Gentile. An open and notorious sinner or somebody who sins a little more privately. So what is your response? I pray that you will turn away from your sins and that you will trust in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus gives us four responses when the word is preached. And these are the soil types, which is our third point. The first response you can see in verse 19. Look down there. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Well, you might ask yourself, why would anyone sow seed along a path? Well, agriculture was a little different at that time and at that place. 
Uh, one scholar tells us that in this area, it was not uncommon to sow first and then to plow. Uh, otherwise, why would the sower sow seed where it hadn't been plowed, right? Uh, in any event, uh, there were often paths that ran through the cropland. They were packed down day after day as people went through the fields. It's kind of like maybe if you remember back to uh, college or maybe a, a work campus that you've been on where paths kind of crop up, they show up, right? It's like where everybody walks. It's the same thing in this day. There wasn't quite as much maybe respect for property lines in those days, you might say. So there were paths through these crops. Anyway, uh, they were all um, very compacted. Nothing was going to grow there. It was extremely hard ground. And because the seed wasn't going to burrow down there, it was just sitting there waiting to be eaten by a bird or trampled by the next person that came through. This seed was not going to make it to its ultimate end. Likewise, when the gospel is preached and it hits this type of soil, it does not take root at all. Jesus tells us in verse 19 that the soil is analogous to the heart. It says the evil one comes and snatch away what was sown in the heart. Perhaps you've heard that term hard-hearted. I think this category actually covers the, ga the gamut of rejection. It could range from anger to indifference, but it is rejection none the same. It might be a hard-hearted person who's angry with anyone who claims to know the way of God. Or it could be someone cynical in the extreme. It could also be the type of person who's not interested in the things of God. Or maybe someone who finds them foolish. This heart is hardened by sin, worldly pleasures, or just simple distraction. The gospel, like seed thrown in this path, does not penetrate. Any of these predilections gives our enemy plenty to work with. Did you notice there? That for the hard-hearted, for the seed along the path, that it's the evil one who comes along to snatch away the seed. We need to recognize that there is spiritual welfare, warfare between good and evil all the time. While you want to be careful with parables not to take everything too literally, we know from many scriptures that Satan is involved in our world. He is a liar and the father of lies. He even transforms himself and his servants as angels of light and ministers of righteousness were warned in 2 Corinthians 11. Satan has designs on the church to sow deception, deceit, and division. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. So we need to be on guard against the devil's lies. For many of the hard-hearted, they might think that they're not the gullible or the susceptible type. But they need to understand that they're far more susceptible to the evil one than they could ever imagine. It's hard to say it any more clearly than John MacArthur. Here's what he said. Satan also exploits sinful human passions, fear of what others might think, pride, stubbornness, prejudice, or various lusts. He appeals to the fallen heart's love for the pleasures of sin. He knows that people love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. And he takes advantage of that. It is easy for him to make appealing to those who love darkness. Then, having gained the sinner's trust and attention, he diverts the mind from the truth of the word effectively snatching it away from the person's consciousness. If you find yourself today in this soil group, it's not too late to turn away from your sin. All God's people were once right where you are. We too were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the evil one. Consider soberly and seriously the claims of Jesus Christ and ask God to show you the truth. Pray the prayer of the man in Mark 9. Help me with my unbelief. God delights to answer that prayer. Well, what about the second soil type? Let's read that in verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Seed that sprouts on rocky ground initially looks good, at least at the surface level. The response to the gospel message is one of immediate joy, it says here. And let's start by acknowledging that it's a cause for celebration anytime anyone comes to faith, professes faith, and embraces the gospel. After all, we know there's rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. It's also not wrong for us to assume that that person is truly repentant and believes the gospel. They should be treated as a brother or sister straight away. It is only with the added ingredient of time, however, that we discover whether the person is rooted. Have you ever seen a plant growing in very shallow soil? I saw this once driving along a familiar road. Uh, it was growing between the cracks in the road, and I kind of just noticed it one day that it was big. It sprouted, seemed like overnight. And within just a matter of days, it was withered and it was brown. And as Jesus explains, when the sun rises, these plants get scorched. They don't have the moisture and the air, and they don't have any roots to go down in the soil to get that moisture to keep them uh, from drying out. Sadly, I've seen people like this too, seemingly excited to follow Jesus one day and then gone the next. We should not be surprised when this happens from time to time, as Jesus told us that it would. Jesus points to two things that drive people away, these uh, shallow soil believers or non-believers, tribulation and persecution. Perhaps not coincidentally, these are the two things that we're told as Christians are coming our way. Jesus predicts persecution to his first disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as one of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In our country at this time, it may not mean prison, or potential execution uh, that Asia is facing, but it could mean ostracism or ridicule. Jesus tells his believers that trials will come. It's not a question, it's a, it really is a question of when and not if. Listen to this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's James 1, 2. Peter tells the early church, quote, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.6 We don't do anyone any favors if we pretend that the Christian life is easy or that it will lead to your best life now. No one can guarantee that embracing Christ will be trouble-free and without persecution. In fact, the scripture says the opposite, as we just heard. We know from this passage that superficial professors will fall away because of it. I would suspect that most of the people in this group just kind of fade away. They stop coming to church. They don't show any fruit. They may ultimately reject the faith. Or they may just keep it to themselves, compartmentalize, and not hold fast to the truth when challenged by others. They are perhaps the lukewarm people that Jesus said he will spit out of his mouth. And Revelation. We have a good picture of what this looks like in the people of Israel. They faced tribulation and many fell, fell away. Perhaps this is what happened to the great crowds that were surrounding Jesus. They liked the authoritative teaching, they liked the healing and the feeding, 
the fact that he challenged the religious hypocrites, perhaps. But when Jesus and his followers started to face persecution, when the going caught, when the going got tough, they took a walk. If you are a new Christian, I want to encourage you to grow roots. The first thing you need to do is to find a church to join. We're commanded to meet together in Hebrews. We're also commanded to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that Jesus commands. Find a church that believes the Bible and wants to obey the words of Jesus. Be baptized in obedience to Jesus' command. Hear the word preached at least weekly. Read it daily. Ask a fruitful Christian to walk with you and to teach you. And pray to God asking for fruit in your life. Avail yourself of the Lord's Supper. Hear and do the words of Christ. We can do all of these things in the context of a local church. Now, let's look at the third soil type. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This next soil type is that of thorns. Notice here that it's not persecution or tribulation that trips this group up. They do have some roots, but the problem is that they're mixed in with the weeds and the thorns. Jesus pinpoints the problems here as the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Can I confess to you that this is the scariest category of all to me? These are folks that may persist in the church for many years. They attend and might even withstand some persecution and trouble. They indeed have some marks of a true believer. But the problem with this group is that it's not fruitful. Ordinarily, Christians are fruitful. Jesus gives a lengthy explanation about being fruitful as a Christian in, in John 15. There he says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God the Father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He continues and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. A little later he says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So, we have to abide in Christ to be fruitful. How do we do that? He actually says it in verse 10 of John 15. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And elsewhere it says, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. Jesus summarizes all of His commandments in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Loving God and loving your neighbor is fruitfulness. What does it look like? Well, we can look at the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22. There it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So it's a pretty simple metric here. Are you kind to your neighbor? Do you have peace at work or at school or in your home? 
Is there patience in your household? These are all things that a fruit inspector might look for. Did you notice at the end of that section of scripture is negative? It says, we are to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. We are, that means that we are to resist our sinful desires ruling us, but instead submit ourselves to pleasing God. So what does it mean to die to self and to be fruitful? It's fairly simple, which is not to say easy. Be holy as God is holy. Sanctification is a lifelong process. And we will never do these things perfectly on earth. But if you are engaged in the battle against your sin and for love, then that, dear brothers and sisters, is itself fruit. Are you seeing an arc to your life as you get older that bends toward righteousness? Are you concerned about righteousness? Those dear saints are signs of fruit. But do not let yourself off too easily off the hook here either. Some are tempted to say that this soil type is a saved person, albeit an unfruitful one. But I'm not sure that's right. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Elsewhere, Jesus warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I don't see evidence in Scripture for a category of saved by the skin of your teeth or being a so-called carnal Christian. James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, what is competing with being fruitful in this parable? Two things. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The cares of the world are spoken about in Scripture in several places. It's not bad things in and of themselves, typically. What is meant here is things that are important and secondary to obeying God by loving Him and loving others. It's basically having things out of whack. So do you spend hours and hours on your stock portfolio and none on planning how to wash your wife in the Word? Do you worry and over-prepare when guests are coming to your home but not give a second thought to getting adequate rest for your body and preparing your mind for the Sunday sermon? Do you study without end for school but daydream during sermons? Do you work out religiously but never share the gospel? Are you the first one in the office and the last to leave because of pride or desperation, but you make no time for other church members for encouragement or fellowship? Brothers and sisters, these could all be signs of thorns in your life, signs that the cares of the world are crowding out the most important things. And what can we say about the deceitfulness of riches? How does wealth lie to us? It tells us that it will be there when we need it. It will deliver for us what we want and what we think we need. It can be become a substitute God. It lies to us and tells us all is well. Don't worry, riches say. You have a healthy bank balance. All will be well. But money cannot deliver on that promise. It can also dull us into the sense that we're doing fine because we've been so blessed. It can make us dull to the things of God. Here's Puritan Richard Baxter. He says, when men prosper in the world, their minds are lifted up with their estates, and they can hardly believe they are so ill while they feel themselves so well. If you'd like to think more about the deceptiveness of riches, I recommend the book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity 
by Randy Alcorn. It'll challenge you with God's word and help you put to death any love of money. The word of God says this about money. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10. through 10. The Bible is very clear that you cannot serve God and money. A short time later in 1 Timothy, Paul gives practical advice to the rich. And hint, uh, that's most all of us, if not all of us. We have more resources and luxury than most of the world throughout human history. The Foundation for Economic Education even wrote a piece that made a convincing case that the average American today is richer in absolute terms than John D. Rockefeller was in his day. You can look up that piece this afternoon if you'd like to read it. In my research, I did find a good Rockefeller quote. He said, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Isn't that the truth? In any event, here's what Paul says. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Um, all of us who are rich should go through there. It's a good thing to think about. Are we storing up treasures or are we ready to be generous and ready to share? Well, just as it's hard work to rid a garden of weeds, so it can be hard work to rid our lives of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Perhaps you should meet with a Christian friend, confess your struggles in this area, and pray together. You can do some good weeding together in your own hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, isn't it a miracle that these are not the only soil types? Apart from the work of God, that would be all there is. But there is another. It is the heart that has been turned from stone to flesh. It is the one who has been born again from above. It is the fruitful Christian. Let's look at verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. These crop yields are communicating that this soil is exceedingly good. A Christian life is an exceedingly fruitful life. The first part of the soil type, you see, is the one who hears the word. So, are you regularly attending to the preaching of God's word? Are you studying it, even outside of Sunday morning? Are you reading it and seeking to apply it to your life? Are you taking notes, perhaps, discussing the sermon or what you're reading with others? These are all good ways to hear the word. The second part of this is to understand the word. One commentator pointed out that parables cause division among their hearers. There are those who seek to really figure it out and understand it, and then there are those that are just kind of happy to hear the story. So what type of listener are you? Do you listen at a surface level, 
Or are you digging into the word to try to really understand it and maybe even be able to explain it to others? Fruitful Christians are going to be those with a steady diet of the word and those who work to understand the word and not just be hearers only. We must pursue personal holiness even as our knowledge of the word increases. Scripture tells us how to avoid being unfruitful. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Elsewhere, James warns us to be doers of the word and not hearers only in deceiving yourself. So that's three points. Listen, understand, obey. We also know, don't we, that crops reproduce themselves. A fruitful Christian is one who spreads the word. That means evangelism. Are you sharing the good news, the word about the kingdom with others? That brings us to our fourth and final point, the sower. I find it interesting that uh, this parable has been known as the parable of the sower for so long, but actually it's not really about him at all. Uh, We know very little about him. We aren't told who it is. Presumably it's Christ when he's telling the message about the kingdom, but it could be others too. It could be me right now throwing out seeds. It also could be you when you're talking to your friends, your family, your neighbors about the kingdom. When you share the gospel, you are in that sense the sower. So when you're sowing seeds, spread them far and wide. Without the sovereign work of God, none are good soil. We should not try to guess which type of soils particular people or people groups are. Your task is simply to share the message, to spread the word as it were. And besides, we, will, we were all hard-hearted once. Just as we should not limit who we preach to, we also need to recognize that the results are up to God. This is a great comfort to all who share from God's word. This should lead us to humility and to direct praise to God. In fact, we read about this passage in um, the discipleship hour this morning. Paul wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. This is a word of application for the church here, too. If we are faithful with the seed, if we're preaching the gospel and relying on God to bring about repentance and faith, then we can have a healthy church of those whom God has called. We may have some who are rocky soils or weedy soils, but I think far fewer than if we change the seed. After all, the seed decides what kind of plant grows up. If we adjusted the gospel for some reason, first of all, you should throw out all the elders if that happens, Uh, But if we try to do that to get more growth, we may end up with more growth in the short term. We probably get a lot more thorny and weedy congregants with the type of quick growth that could come if we tamed the message. But we'd be losing long-term fruit. We would be confusing what the gospel really is. And we would be telling a lie about who God is. So, what do we say? Well, I thought we had some really good encouragement a couple weeks ago from Dr. Red about when we're preaching the gospel, so I want to repeat some of it here. 
we're commanded not to add to the gospel. And Dr. Red told us to not veer off the road kind of in either direction, if you remember this. He said not to add offense to the gospel by adding something to it. For example, you don't want to mix politics with the gospel. You shouldn't share the gospel and say to be saved, you need to believe this and become a Democrat or and become a Republican. Uh, that's not necessary, and you're adding a stumbling block to your hearer. You may also be allowing in weeds at that point. The other guardrail is to not feel like you have to share the gospel beautifully in just the right way. Remember that primitive Methodist preacher that God used to save Spurgeon. God used him as a mouthpiece. He actually used his word to save Spurgeon. It is God's work, and we're just the means that he uses. We are to be faithful to share the gospel and to leave the results to God. We know it's uh, not our message, but it's God's that we're delivering. Hear this from 1 Peter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So, in conclusion, where do you fit in this parable? Which soil best describes you this morning? I pray that you would be the good soil. That you would hear and understand and do the word of God. That you would seek to apply it to your life relying on God's aid every step of the way, that you would generate fruit and that you would beat back any weeds that might be creeping in. I also hope that you will be a faithful sower of the seed, spread it far and wide, trusting the results to God. Have faith to know that God's word does not return void, that it will do its work. And let's remember that we're running a marathon, seeking to be faithful by God's help as we go. One day, May we hear the words of our Master and our Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are worthy of all worship. You made the world and everything in it. You saw our terrible rebellion and had mercy on us. You sent your son Jesus to live the life that we could not and to die in our place. We praise you for that great gospel message, that seed. We thank you that ultimately you are the sower, the one providing the good message that can lead to fruitful growth. May we rest knowing that you who began a good work are faithful to complete it. Help us to hear, to understand, and to do your word in grateful obedience. Please thwart the enemy's plan to snatch away what has been sown. And we pray that you would use us as a means to spread your gospel to our friends, to our neighbors, and to our family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.